From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. Brooke Gladstone is off this week. I'm Bob Garfield. Friday morning at 1.29, after seven years of conflict and drama, at long last came the denouement. Arizona Senator John McCain, having returned to the Senate from brain surgery for the decisive votes on the repeal of Obamacare, shambled across the blue Senate carpet and literally turned his thumb down on so-called skinny repeal. The drama wasn't incidental. McCain planned it that way, telling inquiring reporters Thursday to wait for the show. And the scene was indeed like a season-ending episode of West Wing, because even in the minutes leading up to the vote, he was letting his Republican colleagues, including the vice president, petition him for support, although he'd already informed Democratic leadership of his intentions. For an hour, McConnell comes in, goes out, uh, various floor leaders doing the same. Uh, We can't tell what's happening, and I'm hoping you can. They were talking. John McCain walked away and just sort of patted the vice president. Mm Uh, on his hand and walked away and left him standing there. And it was just interesting Mm -hmm. body language. Yeah, Yeah. he just kind of walked away and the vice president was like, okay. Okay. The Republicans are concerned. I mean, they are scurrying around. They're trying to figure out exactly how to handle this situation. Uh, It was the apparent end, not only for the GOP's quixotic repeal ambitions, but very possibly McCain's legislative career. He must now return home to treat aggressive brain cancer and a prognosis that is not encouraging. If this is his final show, it was a McCain classic. After all, it was his vote on Tuesday that permitted the bill to come to the Senate floor in the first place. I voted for the motion to proceed to allow debate to continue and amendments to be offered. I will not vote for this bill as it is today. The turnabout, if that's what it was, was just the latest jagged detour on the route of McCain's Straight Talk Express. The Atlantic's James Fallows has ridden that bus for 35 years. Jim, welcome back to the show. Uh, Bob, nice to talk to you. I compared Friday morning to the West Wing, but it also had a kind of daytime soap opera vibe. Identical twins, exact opposites, all the time switching places, and you don't know which is which. And, of course, you're referring to the person of Senator McCain himself, who's had these different elements in his public career and his private persona for a very long time. And I'll say that that I, as a person who has watched and admired the best parts of John McCain over the decades, and also as somebody, full disclosure, who thought this bill was being rushed through, I was personally glad to see things end up on this note and not where they had been two days before. Okay, so if there are two John McCains, over the years, the press has paid very little attention to the twin brother who votes along straight party lines 90% of the time. We're institutionally infatuated with the one who every now and then breaks ranks, as he did Friday morning. How did this love affair begin? I think there's a combination of factors here. One, of course, is John McCain's military and prisoner of war background, which anyone has to respect. Second, there have been a number of times in McCain's um, career when he's at least said things that were out of the norm for politicians and said them with some cost. I mean, for example, I'm thinking when during his 2008 campaign, when he was running hard against Barack Obama and one of his questioners in some town hall said, I, I have read about him and he's not, he's not, he's a, 
Uh, he's an Arab. And McCain somewhat inartfully said, No, ma'am. No, ma'am. He's a, he's, a, he's a decent family man, citizen, that I just happen to have disagreements with. On, on Defending Obama at a time when he was not being defended. He's known to be a loyal, mensch-like, personal friend to other people in public life. There was a famous story that Michael Lewis did, you know, decades ago about how when Morris Udall, once a great liberal champion in the Congress, was really disabled by Parkinson's disease and nobody even remembered anymore, the only person who came to visit him was his ideological rival but personal friend John McCain. And there is that side to him. Now, Jim, because you are personally so, um, what do you call it, old. A mature uh, observer <laughs> of the Washington scene. <laughs> that's, I think that's, that's what, what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> You've known him since the 80s when you were in the Carter White House. Tell me about your impression of him at the time. During the Vietnam War and afterward, I was very much in the anti-war movement and was not for that Vietnam War then or now. And what struck me about John McCain's entry on the scene as a Arizona politician and war hero in the early 80s is how much he wanted to find ways to reconcile these split feelings within the United States, a pro and con of the Vietnam War, and between Vietnam and the United States. And, and that was, again, something I think genuine for him. There was nothing he really had to gain for that. There were a lot of other people who were in the veteran community and also in the anti-war community who were quite hard-edged and thought, no, these other people in today's tribal sense, but McCain was not that way. And I think that is something that had a kind of magic in politics then. Maybe this was somebody who could reconcile people in the way other great American leaders have done. One, I think, nakedly hypocritical aspect of McCain's political life was his relationship with the religious right. He um, famously excoriated the likes of Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell for having undue influence on parts of the electorate and warned the rest of the Republican Party, and I think he was pointing mainly at George W. Bush, not to pander to the outer reaches of American politics. Right. I think that John McCain's anger at extremism, and especially religious extremism, back in 2000 was well-earned because famously in the South Carolina primary in 2000 when he was still a serious contender against George W. Bush, the Bush campaign used a lot of really nasty rile-up-the-evangelical-base attacks on McCain that he was properly furious about. And so if he was complaining about it at the time, that was a legitimate complaint. But when McCain had to rev up his campaign eight years later to run eventually against Barack Obama, he, like other petitioners in the GOP field, felt he had to court these people too. But in a kind of classic McCain fashion, he doubles back and once again manages to seduce the media. Senator! What's going on? By sort of uh, becoming the butt of the joke. Here he is with John Stewart in 2006. I heard this crazy story that Senator John McCain is giving the commencement address at Jerry Falwell's university. Well, before I bring on my two attorneys, I'd like to... Uh... <laughs> don't... Don't... Yeah, I like make me love you. <laughs> Don't make me love you. <laughs> and yet he did. He has such a string of conquests over the media. It's true. And you know the famous Hollywood line, if you can fake authenticity, you've got it made. There's something similar in politics. If you can fake self-deprecation, 
you've got it made. <laughs> I think the press is more of a sucker for that than for anything else. And so if you can seem to be self-aware, if you can seem to understand the preposterousness of what you're doing, which Obama did in a different way too, parallel point, this is not Donald Trump's strongest suit. But if, <laughs> if, you, if, you, can, if you can seem to be self-aware, you can go a long way. And, and McCain has done that. Well, on the subject of that sort of cynicism uh, and for the race against Barack Obama in 2008, there was one other kind of jaw-dropping McCain political decision that, you know, still kind of makes my head spin. And that is Sarah Palin as his vice presidential running mate. This was the roll-the-dice, reckless, just-being-another-desperate-politician side of John McCain that I think will be the main anchor around his reputation in a bad sense of saying, this is the guy who did that and brought Sarah Palin conceivably within commander-in-chief range. Yeah, but just as you're about to sort of dismiss him as another politician with a ready smile and a shoeshine, He'll do something that he absolutely doesn't have to do. For example, there was an appearance on Fox and Friends um, in 2013. Well, listen to this video, Senator McCain, of a uh, Syrian, uh, it looks like a, a, a fighter, uh, fighter jet being shot out of the sky. Listen to what said they say afterwards. Allahu Akbar! Allahu Akbar! I, I have a problem uh, helping those people out of screaming that? that after a hit. Do you have a, do you have would you have a problem with American Christians saying thank God thank God that's what it that's what they're saying come on uh, of course they are Muslim John McCain don't make me love yeah. you <laughs> okay so comes the Senate showdown Friday morning and McCain goes thumbs down was this do you think about the bill was it about payback to Donald Trump who during the campaign had questioned McCain's war heroism. Was it about open government and the end of Mitch McConnell's opacity? Or was it about McCain's legacy, not wishing to be seen in the end as two-faced, but to have maverick in the history books and in the lead of every obituary? I assume there are elements of every part of what you've just described in his uh, decision. You know, he cannot view Donald Trump with anything other than disdain given Trump's own uh, public contempt for him on, on the campaign trail. He's not been that close a friend of Mitch McConnell, who he seemed visibly to spurn during the late night voting. And he must also recognize for all of his jauntiness over the years that he's not going to have that many more chances to make a big public decision. And I think the fact that Senator Hirono from Hawaii came in to speak passionately about what she was doing as a cancer patient in surviving this bill, his memory of Ted Kennedy, his close friend who, after his diagnosis with the brain cancer, came to vote for the original Obamacare bill, his knowledge of Claire Engel, the senator from California who back in the 1960s came in from uh, almost terminal brain cancer to vote to end a filibuster against the civil rights bill. I think John McCain must have sensed there. this is a chance to, if not end, at least to have this stage of his career be on a way he would like to be remembered and not the other. In your view, is this redemption? It is a good thing for him to have done after it must be noted Senator Murkowski of Alaska and Senator Collins of Maine made his vote the decisive one by their, their standing with the bill. And, of course, the other 48 Democrats and independents who said they weren't going to rush this through. And if this ends up to be the last major 
decision or choice he makes in his long public career. I think everybody who has admired the best in John McCain will be glad to see him making this choice. Jim, thank you. Thank you, Bob. James Fallows is a national correspondent for The Atlantic. His article on Senator John McCain is titled, John McCain Makes His Choice. Coming up, if you can't repeal Obamacare... Boy, oh boy. They've been working on that one for seven years. Can you believe that? How about using taxpayer money to destroy it? You know, I said from the beginning, let Obamacare implode. This is on the media. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. Beyond the drama on the Senate floor Thursday night and into Friday's wee hours, the effort on health care isn't necessarily over, although how it may be revived is a mystery. From the beginning, the Republican attempt to repeal Obamacare has been utterly opaque to senators, to aides, to the White House, and certainly to the press. This is maybe one of the weirdest days in my entire career as a health reporter. We have only seven hours of debate left, and there is no bill. Julie Rovner is chief Washington correspondent for Kaiser Health News, who spoke to us Thursday before the crucial vote. As of Friday, she says, repeal is in a medically induced coma, perhaps to be revived by Republican leadership, perhaps not. Whatever happens, she is pretty sure her decades of experience with legislative procedure and gathering information from knowledgeable sources will do her very little good. We're so far beyond whatever happened in Schoolhouse Rock that you you can't even begin to explain this. I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. What is happening along the way is something that I have known for quite some time and a lot of health reporters have known for quite some time, which is that the Republican Party is as divided about what to do about health care as the Democratic Party is. Um, You know, everybody talks about the Democrats are split between the single payer people and the incremental people. Uh, Well, the Republicans are divided between the much more libertarian, the government shouldn't be involved in the health care system, and the much more sort of corporate, traditional Republican of health care is a big business and we want to support our friends in the business of health care. And those two things don't come together very well. Um, This should not be a real new discovery, but they have papered it over the last seven years by everybody standing up and saying, we hate Obamacare, we want to make it go away. The problem is they can't get to the next paragraph of, well, here's what we would like to do instead, because they can't agree. If this were an ordinary legislative process, what would have happened to this point? What was supposed to happen is that the two Senate committees in charge of health care, the Finance Committee and the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, were supposed to go in and meet and 
devise and mark up and vote on their provisions for this budget reconciliation bill. The Senate Budget Committee was supposed to put those things together into a bill. That was supposed to come to the floor and be debated. So it would have been debated in sometimes many, many days in committee. Everybody would have seen it. The Congressional Budget Office would have scored it. Everybody would have had some idea what it was going to do. You start the debate and you go 20 hours and then you have at the end of this, this voterama where you can vote on unlimited amendments until everybody gets too tired to vote anymore. That's not what's happening here. And for a reporter, the job in the scenario that you just described is pretty straightforward. You talk to the sponsors of the bill. You talk to the opponents of the bill. You consider the amendments to it. You consider the testimony that's made at the hearings that presumably would have taken place. But now you're in the dark with everybody else. How in the world have you covered this story in a complete vacuum of information about the legislation itself? It's been extremely frustrating. I mean, normally what I like to do as I'm reporting to a general audience is that you want to tell them how it would affect them. The problem is we have four or five different possibilities floating around, all of which would affect different people in different ways. So it's impossible to answer the question of, you know, how does this affect me and my health care? That is just not an answerable question. I think to some extent that's the Republican strategy here is to confuse reporters and therefore the public into what some of these things would really do because according to most experts, including the now embattled Congressional Budget Office, the public does not approve of most of the things that most of these bills would do. If you can't cover the substance and the process the way you ordinarily would, I will say this, you've had plenty of drama to cover. And what you see on your screen there is the protesters being dragged out of the Capitol building. They are protesting the Republican bill, which, of course, none of them has read yet. There were reports that the Capitol Police were demanding that journalists surrender or delete photos of the protesters. Yeah, that is extremely unusual, and I would suspect something that would be unlikely to stand. Um, I don't know that I see what's going on on Capitol Hill as being any kind of systematic effort to control the free press the way it might be actually in the White House. Uh, So can we wax philosophical for just a moment? Sure. (laughs) Your job ordinarily is to see what's going on in the Senate on any piece of legislation, try to understand it and explain it to the folks. Mm -hmm. In the current circumstances, what part do you and the rest of the free press play apart from just being the narrator of an absurd reality TV show. Um, It is. It's frustrating because I want to do my job. I want to be able to say, this is what they are doing and this is what it would mean. And that has been increasingly difficult. I mean, it's not my job to say whether or not it's good or bad, but at least it's my job to say what it is. And I'm having an increasingly difficult time doing that. One last question. It's a simple one. What's going to happen? I wish I knew. Um, I, you know, this we keep all the health reporters keep referring to this as the zombie bill because it keeps dying and coming back to life. The tweet that I have pinned at the top of my profile right now says, "I will believe the health bill is dead when I see it with an actual stake through it, and maybe not even then." <laughs> Julie, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Julie Rovner is chief Washington correspondent for Kaiser Health News. Her reporting frequently shows up on a little network called NPR.
As the GOP attempts to keep its promise to repeal the Affordable Care Act, the government itself, the government bound to uphold the nation's laws, is agitating against Obamacare from within. Not only has President Trump sworn to starve Obamacare into collapse, his Department of Health and Human Services has produced taxpayer-funded anti-ACA propaganda. Sam Stein is the politics editor at The Daily Beast, and he's been looking into this. One of the first notable things that they did was they pulled advertising dollars designed to tell people when the enrollment period ended. Now, anyone who does this stuff for a living knows that you buy health insurance, like much of any other product, the closer you get to the deadline to buy that product. So when you pull the advertisement dollars towards the end of the enrollment period, you really are hurting the possibility of mass enrollment. So that's kind of the starvation strategy. If Correct. people forget to uh, re-enroll, well, that's too bad. Uh, too bad. Okay. But then it went beyond there. So suddenly on the Department of Health and Human Services YouTube page, there began to pop up these testimonial videos of people who were harmed by Obamacare. They were small business owners, family members, mothers. These videos were doing very, very poorly online. I mean, something like 100 to 200 views total for each of videos. But they were promoted by the Department of Health and Human Services. And so we began to wonder, well, what is going on here? And we dug into it and we talked to our sources. And what we found out was that the Department of Health and Human Services was using the budget that was ostensibly for promoting the Affordable Care Act to fund the creation of these videos, which were ostensibly done to undermine the Affordable Care Act. And it got worse from there. If you looked at the Department of Health and Human Services website and you examined how it appeared prior to January 20th and post-January 20th, you began to pick up these notable fundamental changes. Pages that were meant to educate the public about the benefits of Obamacare suddenly had been taken down. Uh, you couldn't get easy access to healthcare.gov, which is the portal to sign up for Obamacare through the department's website anymore. And even references to the Affordable Care Act had been taken off the website and replaced with phrases like the current law. Can we listen to what some of these videos sounded like? Jake is a 22-year-old developmentally disabled um, young man who has a very rare developmental disability. The biggest issue is that as we expand Obamacare and Medicaid to able-bodied people, what's happening is we're hurting the truly most vulnerable. There's just not enough money to go around, so the first cut, unfortunately, are the truly most vulnerable. I'm an IT guy. I know how websites work, uh, and this wasn't working properly. I ended up then calling the help desk, and again, all they did was walk through the same web form over and over and over again, only to see it fail again and again. We saved all this money, uh, worked hard, both of us, uh, over the years because we were brought up stand on your own two feet. Now, with this health care, it's taking our knees out from under us. I talked to a few people who appeared in the ads. One of them, a doctor from Kentucky, said something that was very revealing to me, which is that he's not a fan of the Affordable Care Act, uh, but he's not a passionate critic of it either. And he said when he was sat down in the studio at HHS, he let it be known to the people there that, you know, he had problems with the law, but he wasn't going to bash it outright. And what they encouraged him to do was speak more critically of the law for the camera. And he said openly to me that he felt like they were trying to get him to say something that they could use. I have to ask you if there's any question of just the legality of this program. 
of the the government using taxpayer money to criticize the very law that it is charged with enforcing? So that's a really good question. And it's the one that sort of vexed me in my reporting of this story. I don't think that in the creation of these videos or the way that they edited or tampered with their website that they violated law. And, and the lawyers I talked to and the ethicists I talked to say they don't think so. But there was a third component to my story where it does get into sort of this very murky gray zone. And that is on their respective Twitter handle. In addition to the changes that we discussed, Dr. Tom Price, who is the secretary at HHS, and the HHS official Twitter handle both have semi-regularly tweeted not only their criticism of Obamacare and as well as promoting these videos, they've also in- tweeted their encouragement of congressional legislation to repeal and replace Obamacare. That's where we begin to get into this ethically and legally dubious area. You are, as a federal employee, prohibited from outwardly advocating for passage of legislation. Under the Hatch uh, Act. Well, it's not just the Hatch Act. There's an anti-lobbying act as well, which makes these prohibitions. And then, not to bore the listener too much, but there are statutorial provisions within the Appropriations Act that have these type of prohibitions as well. Now, the lawyers I talked to say that in encouraging the House, for instance, to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act with their own legislation, Dr. Price sort of got really close to the letter of the law. Had he actively encouraged people to make phone calls, for instance, to lawmakers to pass the act, had he actively encouraged people to write letters to members of Congress, encouraging them to pass, repeal, and replace, then he definitely would have been in violation of the law. I wonder what life is like for the bureaucrats at the Department of Health and Human Services who, until mid-January, were charged with making Obamacare work and now have been thrust into undercutting the very program that up until very recently they were trying to facilitate. It's whiplash, for starters, um, because it's not a subtle difference. It's a 180-degree difference. And the other thing that you have to keep in mind is that these people who work as careerists in this agency, at a fundamental level, it's not really about the act or the law itself. It's about the idea of giving, providing people health and human services. It's about following the actual title of the agency. And part of what allowed me to report this out was that there's an intense sense of frustration and disenchantment that's happening within HHS over the direction that they're taking. They understand that this administration is critical of Obamacare, and they fully respect the administration's ability to put in their own health care system, as well as to put in a much more conservative health care system than Obama did. But where they get frustrated is in seeing actual policies put in place that they believe will fundamentally impact people's health. Sam, thank you very much. Hey, thank you very much for having me. Sam Stein is the politics editor at The Daily Beast. Coming up, a dying British infant becomes a pawn in the U.S. healthcare debate. The evidence was overwhelmingly against what these American writers were saying. All they had to do was look at the evidence, and it was quite clear to me that none of them had the faintest idea what they were talking about. None of them had actually looked at the evidence. None of them actually read the medical reports. 
None of them had done anything other than leap to a conclusion that socialized medical care kills children. This is on the media. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. A funny thing happened on the way to the GOP repeal and replace fiasco. The sudden reemergence of the conversation about single-payer health coverage. The government being the single-payer in a system financed by taxes. Long derided as socialized medicine and the moral equivalent of collectivized farming, universal taxpayer-funded health care is gaining traction. And they want to see, uh, you know, Medicaid for all, single-payer uh, insurance for all. And that's where you've seen Bernie Sanders talk about this. You've seen Elizabeth Warren talk about this. Um, so that's where the leadership of the Democratic Party is. And again, m- plenty of members of the rank and file Democrats are, are there as well. Even Minority Leader Chuck Schumer said it was, quote, on the table. In June, a Pew poll found that 33 percent of the public now favors a single-payer approach to health insurance, which doesn't sound like much, but it is up five percentage points since January and up 12 points since 2014. A YouGov economist survey from April found 60 percent public support for Medicare for all. In the House of Representatives, Democrat John Conyers of Michigan has introduced a Medicare for All bill every year since 2003. Last year, he had 63 co-sponsors. This year, it's up to 115. But don't hold your breath. Jill Quadagno, author of One Nation Uninsured, Why the U.S. Has No National Health Insurance, says that the history of single-payer proposals is the history of scorched-earth lobbying and PR campaigns designed to thwart them. Really, it goes back 100 years. In the 1910s, proposed state laws for government health care, chiefly those in New York and California, were getting attention. But the proposals came from the wrong sort. There were immigrants from Hungary and from Germany, many of them Jewish immigrants, who brought with them socialist ideas. Some of the labor unions had socialist orientations. This was considered a threat. In the lead-up to World War I, the fight for national health insurance also was caught up in the fear of corrupting our way of life. When the bill for New York began to make headway, Officers of the New York Medical Society called it un-American, not democratic. Their leader said it represented the first step towards state socialism. And so that was really the beginning of this theme that health insurance is socialism. During the New Deal, President Roosevelt had considered including national health insurance in the Social Security Act of 1935. But there was opposition from the American Medical Association in particular that were very vocal about it. And he was not willing to risk losing Social Security for national health insurance. And so he took that out of the bill. 
President Truman took up the mantle, and he was famously persistent in trying to achieve single payer. Most of our people cannot afford to pay for the care they need. I have often and strongly urged that this condition demands a national health program. In fact, when President Johnson finally signed Medicare and Medicaid into law, he credited Harry Truman. He had been a judge in a small town. He had seen many of his clients who were sick and poor and couldn't pay for health care. So he had both a personal interest and then a politician's interest in what he thought might be a popular and winning campaign slogan, health insurance for all. Our ultimate aim must be a comprehensive insurance system to protect all our people equally against insecurity and ill health. Republicans were very much opposed to the Social Security Act, which they saw as a government takeover. In the midst of a red scare in which everything that looked uh, pink would stink. If a person supports organizations which reflect communist teachings or organizations labeled communist by the Department of Justice, she may be a communist. It was right before McCarthy began his hearings, socialism, fascism, Nazism. The American Medical Association has local chapters of physicians in every town who controlled access to hospitals. So if you lost your membership in the AMA, you could be banned from practicing in hospitals. So they had a powerful weapon at their hand to become this huge lobbying force against national health insurance. In the United States, we're frightened about socialized medicine, and our medical profession is going to do everything possible to prevent the government, the federal government, taking over medicine. They hired a PR firm called Whitaker and Baxter to devise a campaign against Truman's plan. That included speeches doctors could give in their towns, literature that they could hand out to patients, and so the hospitals and doctor's offices and nurses and dentists became very involved in the fight against national health insurance. But beneath what was visible were the activities of the National Association of Manufacturers, the Chamber of Commerce, and other business groups giving money, supporting candidates. And so many Democratic senators lost their seats for supporting national health insurance. It died a death in the 40s and was not really revived until Clinton, I would say. Now, the nominal argument by the AMA against national health insurance as people continue to argue today, is that the government would get between your personal relationship with your doctor and and your own agency over your own health. One of the traditional methods of imposing statism or socialism on a people has been by way of medicine. Today, the relationship between patient and doctor in this country is something to be envied any place. The privacy, the care that is given to a person, the right to choose a doctor, the right to go from one doctor to the other. But it, it was never really about that, was it? It was about how much the docs were going to get paid. Doctors were opposed because they were afraid that if there was a third-party payer involved, that it might take over control of doctor's charges and doctor's practices, which is, of course, what's happened anyway over the last century. As it turned out, doctors did very well by Medicare. And by the time the Clintons in the early 90s were working on their health care policy, 
the interference was less from the AMA than the insurance companies themselves who got together and funded, among other things, this notorious ad that came to be known as Harry and Louise. But this was covered under our old plan. Oh, yeah, that was a good one, wasn't it? Things are changing, and not all for the better. The government may force us to pick from a few health care plans designed by government bureaucrats. Having choices we don't like is no choice at all. Yeah, they choose. We lose. And the Harry and Louise ads echoed a theme that began really in the 1930s, the idea that the government would take over your health insurance and would destroy the doctor-patient relationship. You know, we see that now even when the Republicans are debating their new plan, whatever that turns out to be. It's a common-sense approach that restores the sacred doctor-patient relationship. And respect for the doctor-patient relationship and returns the relationship between a patient and his or her doctor without the government being in the middle. It's still the theme that hurt Harry Truman in the 1940s, that hurt Clinton in the 1990s, and that's been used in attacks on Obamacare since 2010. The American Medical Association became the whipping boy for opposing Medicare, but there were behind the scenes, again, these business organizations. So the AMA probably doesn't deserve all the criticism that it got because it wasn't actually as powerful. And the current position of the AMA is in opposition to the Senate bill. This whole conversation is premised on the notion that even two years ago, single payer was just unthinkable, politically impossible, a non-starter. But now... The fight over Obamacare and and its repeal has kind of put national health insurance back in play. Tell me what's happening now that's kind of resurrected it as a policy option. What about the hitherto all-powerful epithet, socialized medicine? You know, that comes and goes in waves, and so I think it will always be a part of American politics. But I think the one problem the Republicans are having now is finding a message, crafting a message that explains what they're doing to the public. And so I think that's also helped the single-payer idea, the fact that the Republicans don't really have a good explanation for what they're doing. The anti-government theme isn't working very well when so many more people now have Medicaid or health insurance through the exchanges And we find that the younger you are, the more likely you are to support government-provided health care for everyone. For younger people, their whole lives, Medicare has been there. Medicaid has expanded enormously. Medicaid is now almost as popular as Medicare. And so that idea now is resonating with the public much more than the idea that the government doesn't have any responsibility and has to get out of the healthcare system completely. People just don't buy that anymore. But now I am thinking of same-sex marriage. It was politically untenable. In fact, it was one of the huge arguments of the culture wars, and it was used as a bogeyman by Republican candidates. Is this a turning point in the same way for single payer? I mean, could it be the gay marriage of health policy? I don't think so. You're facing different kinds of political problems. Gay marriage was one single thing that had to be done. 
let gay people marry. This would involve multiple different activities, maybe several bills. And one-sixth of the entire economy. Yes, it would affect almost half of the public who already have some form of government insurance through Medicare, Medicaid, veterans benefits, uh, state workers, federal employees, retirees, and many more actors and players, including hospitals, doctors, medical associations, AARP, just much more complex issue than gay marriage. I think that this could be a turning point in terms of the effort to replace and repeal Obamacare, for sure. But what will happen next is much less clear. And I don't think either party has really decided what it will offer to the American public. Jill, thank you very much. A pleasure. Jill Quadagno is the author of One Nation Uninsured, Why the U.S. Has No National Health Insurance. She is also Professor Emeritus of Sociology at Florida State University. The supposed evils of single-payer persist as a right-wing meme, sometimes in the most heartbreaking ways. A year ago, in a London hospital, a baby named Charlie Gard was born with mitochondrial DNA depletion syndrome, which in his first month of life left him profoundly brain-damaged. The hospital, mindful of the infant's ongoing pain, wanted to turn off life support. Specialists at Great Ormond Street Hospital said his brain damage was irreversible. The hospital where he's being treated has decided to end his life support, and his parents have made several unsuccessful legal challenges to that decision. The parents of the terminally ill baby, Charlie Gard, returned with lawyers to present new evidence of an experimental treatment in America they say that could help him. The distraught parents fought the decision and went to court to keep their baby alive, a drama that captured the sympathy of a nation. But the saga did not stay on that side of the Atlantic. Offered false hope by an American doctor flogging his own treatment, as yet untested on humans in clinical trials, the family became the tool of right-wing American critics of Britain's single-payer National Health Service, who portrayed Charlie as a martyr to statist tyranny. The 11-month-old baby who's captured the world's attention after essentially being sentenced to death. Since when did international bureaucrats decide they have the right to make decisions for your child whom they've never met? Since forever. That's all they do. Super important story, not just for Charlie Gard, most importantly, of course, but also for where we're going in terms of our health system in the United States and who has the right to make these decisions. After the parents lost their battle to have their son's final days at home, Charlie Gard died Friday in a children's hospice. Melanie Phillips is a British journalist and a columnist at the Times of London who wrote about the story on her blog, MelaniePhillips.com. Melanie, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good to speak to you. Infant Charlie had been granted U.S. citizenship in order to come here for some sort of experimental treatment because his cause was taken up by conservative Americans, including the president of the United States himself. Why was he such a convenient poster infant for their political positions? I presume this is connected to the great fight over repealing Obamacare. They seized upon this 
as what they thought of as an example of a child being murdered by state-socialized medicine. What the American conservatives said that this appeared to be was a fight between the parents and the state. It wasn't. It was a fight between the parents on the one hand, understandable as their position was, and medical ethics on the other, arbitrated by the courts. And these poor parents were and are in a state of denial, which is understandable, it's very unfortunate. The kindest thing is to get them to acknowledge the reality. But because there was this enormous campaign coming from America telling them that they alone had the right to decide what should happen to this child, they were obviously persuaded or came to believe that the strength of this campaign would force the court to take their side. It made it much more hard for them to accept the terrible, tragic reality of their child's condition, and it meant that these court proceedings were protracted. And the effect of what they've done is certainly to prolong the agony of these parents and possibly even more horribly and unthinkably to cause this dying child yet more pain and distress. Let me read a couple of samples of the kind of rhetoric that was flying around the right-wing media. This is from a website called American Thinker. Little Charlie Gard appears to be under a death sentence courtesy of the Great Ormond Street Hospital and the British courts in what it called a totalitarian state and referred to the almost inhuman indifference to the plight of the parents by the Great Ormond Street Hospital. You're saying that the indifference to the parents' grief and to the child's welfare does not fall on the healthcare system. It falls on the people who prolong the child's life in pain. If you have people from the President of the United States downwards effectively telling these parents, you know, dig in your heels, it is your right and your right alone. And if those parents are already, because of their grief and distress, in a state of denial of the reality, then you have this grotesque situation that we've just had in which this poor dying child's agony is being prolonged. The parent's agony is being prolonged. Now, I should observe that you are not yourself a leftist firebrand. You are a conservative thinker who, in some cases, are very much simpatico with the very publications and websites that you are, at the moment, so infuriated with. I'm considered to be a conservative writer, and many of these people on so many issues, you know, they and I actually share the same worldview. On this occasion, however, I could not believe what I was reading and hearing in the combination of absolute ignorance, ignorance of medical ethics, ignorance of the British system, ignorance of the British court system, coupled with the arrogance of telling Britain how to do its stuff. Tell me how this broke through bedrock conservative principles to so appall you. The evidence was overwhelmingly against what these American writers were saying. All they had to do was look at the evidence, and it was quite clear to me that none of them had the faintest idea what they were talking about. None of them had actually looked at the evidence. None of them actually read the medical reports. None of them had done anything other than leap to a conclusion. Because it was Britain, and because they know that Britain has a national health service, a socialised medicine, and because they are, as conservatives in America, locked in combat over the repeal of Obamacare, they leapt upon this case to illustrate their contention 
that socialised medical care kills children or kills patients and captures individual patients for the state. Now, this bears absolutely no relation to reality whatsoever. It is simply ignorant and it is ideological. I think that conservative commentators and others in America saw in this terrible, tragic case an example that they could use in the domestic fight over Obamacare in order to show that socialized medicine was a killer. The United States does not, as it turns out, have the monopoly on conservative media, on your side of the ocean. There's everything in the continuum, I guess, from the Times of London, for whom you write, and the Daily Mail. I wonder whether the right-wing media in the UK was more restrained, more thoughtful, more fact-based, less hysterical than their counterparts over here. The conservative media in Britain behaved completely differently from the conservative commentators in America over this case. That's not to say there weren't differences of opinion, but there was nothing like the furore and the bitterness and the accusations being hurled in America, because in Britain it was seen as a genuine dilemma, because no one in Britain is trying to show that the National Health Service is a killer in the way that American conservatives do. There are concerns about the National Health Service. I myself have concerns about the National Health Service. But the health issue is not the politically explosive issue that it is in America. Another difference between America and Britain is that while we have in Britain, especially among the Catholic community, a number of people who are very exercised about the right-to-life issues, abortion and terminal care, we don't have anything like the politicized right-to-life movement that you have in America. And a proportion of this furore that was whipped up over this tragic case came from right-to-life activists who were using this not to make the political point about Obamacare necessarily, but more to make the point that it was inconceivable to them that this child's life support should be turned off. And that agenda has come to us from America. And this completely horrified me. And, you know, I spend a lot of my time writing about the lies told by the left-wing media. That's where I'm coming from. And on this occasion, all those things were being done by conservative writers and conservative thinkers and politicians on the right. Melanie, thank you very much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Melanie Phillips is a columnist for The Times of London. Melanie Phillips is horrified by the American right-wing anti-abortion agenda that she sees seeping into British culture. She's right to be worried. On next week's show, Brooke examines the abortion issue here and asks how it came to be so freighted. Historian Jill Lepore. These issues have been shaped by people with nakedly self-serving partisan interests. The political intensity of it, that's an artifice. That's next week on On the Media. That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Alana Casanova-Burgess, Jesse Brenneman, Michael Lowinger, and Leia Fetter. We had more help from John Hanrahan and Isabella Kolkarni. Special thanks to Andy Lancet of the WNYC Archives Department. And our show was edited this week by executive producer Katya Rogers. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Sam Baer and Terrence Bernardo. 
Jim Schachter is WNYC's Vice President for News. Bassist composer Ben Allison wrote our theme. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. Brooke Gladstone will be back next week. I'm Bob Garfield. On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation and the listeners of WNYC Radio.